You're listening to a Toronto Centre podcast. Welcome. The goal of TC Podcasts is to spread the knowledge and accumulated experience of global leaders, experts, and world-renowned specialists in financial supervision and regulation. In each episode, we'll delve into some of today's most pressing issues as it relates to financial supervision and regulation. The financial crisis, climate change, financial inclusion, fintech, and much more. Enjoy this episode. So uh, thank you for the uh, for joining the uh, climate risk community of practice. How supervisors can start the conversation about climate risks. This uh, topic uh, came directly from our uh, climate uh, uh, community of practice focus group. So as a community practice member, you get to influence the uh, topics, uh, participants, and activities that we undergo so that uh, we hope that you will uh, think about joining the community practice in the future so that you can guide our work and uh, be part of exclusive engagements. Uh, we're always seeking new members and we will do a follow-up after this session uh, to get uh, those who are interested. Thanks again for joining. This is a session that's uh, exclusively designed to get uh, your uh, questions to an expert panel about uh, starting the conversation on climate risk. We would like to uh, thank uh, the Toronto Centre sponsors, Global Affairs Canada, the Swedish International Development Cooperation Agency, and the International Monetary Fund to support this activity. We are joined by three uh, eminently qualified uh, uh, experts uh, and they're going to provide from their respective fields and they're gonna be available to you. Uh, you received their biographies in the emails and on the registration. So those are available and continue to be available to you. Let me just deal with a couple of housekeeping uh, items. We have almost uh, 100 registrants. Uh, we've got 28 attendees at this time. So uh, being first uh, to join gives you an opportunity to be first to ask questions. We'll be using the chat function to pose questions to the panelists and uh, that uh, um, we will, uh, we, you can direct it to the panel in general or to specific panel members. Please keep uh, your uh, uh, volume muted so it improves the quality for all of the participants. We have asked the uh, panelists if they would provide a, a few minutes of opening remarks to help set the stage for our conversation and to get your uh, inquisitiveness uh, going. So uh, our first uh, uh, panelist to, uh, will be Dr. Naresh Singh who's Toronto Centre's Sustainability Advisor, and he's going to give us a context on climate risk. Over to you, Dr. Singh. Well, thank you very much, Anatol, and uh, let me also join you in welcoming participants. In the next few minutes, what I'd like to try and do is to just uh, set a sort of a frame, a stage for our conversation today. And I'd like to start with the Paris Agreement, <laughs> Most of you will be familiar uh, with the Paris Agreement. So the world recognized several decades ago that it was heading towards a cliff in terms of climate change and have now concluded that we are in fact facing a real climate crisis. 
a climate emergency. In Paris in 2015, governments came together and other actors and agreed that they will try to keep the rise in temperature of the planet to less than two degrees C and in fact strive for 1.5. If it is kept at 1.5 degree rise above pre-industrial levels, we have a chance to save uh, much damage. The problem was that the nationally determined contributions to the reduction in greenhouse gases was nowhere close to matching uh, that 1.5. And so we are currently on a trajectory to more like three or four degree degrees rise. And many people have been talking of 1.5 to survive. So we are not on a good trajectory at the moment, but there are increasing ambitions. Just last uh, Friday, last Saturday, just less than a week ago, the United Nations Secretary General uh, convened uh, on the 12th of December, i.e. five years after Paris, a climate ambition summit to try to get countries to increase their nationally determined contributions to greenhouse gas reductions. And there are a bunch of countries led by China, the European Union and the UK, who as we know will be hosting the next conference of the parties, uh, increasing their contributions to reduction in climate change in, in greenhouse gases. A very important initiative is that came out of this is the net zero asset managers initiative who have committed themselves as a bunch of asset managers committed to supporting net zero greenhouse gases uh, by 2050 by aligning investments accordingly. So they are looking at, uh, at these together Will, uh, are managing about 9 trillion in assets, 30 of them. And they're hoping that a bunch of others will join them. So that's an important new initiative that has come forward. So the big picture then that we are dealing with is the world is now trying to move to carbon neutrality by 2050. And uh, there, therefore we are moving in a transition to green growth, which must include the content of growth, moving away from fossil fuel-based consumption. This transition is being, uh, the call is for a just transition, i.e. as we move towards uh, reducing greenhouse gases and climate change, how do we deal with inequality, vulnerability of different groups, women, First Nations, people of color, and so on being affected differently, marginalized groups. Now, on top of all of this, of course, we have had the uh, the pandemic and the, um, the challenge now, therefore, is to prevent this economic crisis from turning into a financial crisis. And in order to do that, of course, we need to watch issues of, uh, as we proceed with the recovery, to watch issues of liquidity, solvency, and debt after recovery. There is an opportunity here, however, a big opportunity, because about $10 trillion or so Last time I looked, the IMF estimate maybe it's now about $12 trillion governments have put on the table for this recovery in stimulus packages. And so this is a great opportunity for green recovery. Not everybody is targeting this. Canada and some other countries are. Whether they will achieve it, we don't know. 
So to move to links between climate change and the, and the financial system, the climate can affect the financial system and the financial system affect the climate, both operating through the economic system. Uh, the, in terms of uh, how the climate affects the financial system, two main categories of risks, physical and transition, and transition risks includes liability risks as well. So physical risks are, are driven really by increased temperatures, sea level rise, in general, extreme weather events. And these can damage assets, disrupt supply changes, changing availability and quality of water, um, destruction of real estate, and that kind of thing. Transition risks, on the other hand, are going to be the result of uh, changes in policy, legal, technology, and market changes. Classic example, carbon taxes. You put carbon taxes in place, markets will shift, technologies will shift, and, um, and a whole range of other issues. And different parties will see this differently, as we know, and, uh, and compete for challenges. Now, on the other hand, how can the financial system affect the, the uh, climate? And here we talk about the need for green investments. So there are a range of uh, possibilities of moving away from brown or dirty investments, investments which exacerbate climate, and moving to more green investments. Now we are talking of a whole range of things like green bonds, green capital markets, um, and, uh, and uh, rising demand for trading in low carbon, low uh, sustainable. Um, and more sustainable commodities. One of the big issues here is of course the, that one needs to be on the lookout for stranded assets. As we move in the transition, many fossil fuel based assets could become stranded, i.e. their value could de depreciate very rapidly. Let me conclude by, um, by saying that there are a whole range of opportunities for action that uh, regulators and supervisors can act on, which uh, my colleagues uh, will, will discuss in a little bit more detail. But this range includes uh, green investments and lending, as we are talking about, removing barriers to service innovations, uh, supporting consumer awareness, scenario analysis, stress testing, and a whole range of related uh, actions required by the regulated entities as well. So the, the time has come for increased action by supervisors, financial supervisors, and regulators. And so I will turn it back to you, Anatole, to get colleagues to get into that. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Dr. Singh. That's uh, a, a good opening for us. And, and I see that others are joining us. So uh, welcome, uh, Alison, uh, Anna, and Francisco. Uh, our next speaker is, uh, is Karen Badgerow. Uh, she's the CEO of the Isle of Man Financial Services Authority. And, and she's living and, and breathing this uh, question as we, as we go. She has to both ask the questions and, and give answers. So uh, we'll be listening for her answers today. Karen. Great, thanks so much, Anatole. Thanks, Naresh, for leading off on this really important topic. And I was really lucky, a couple, lucky for a couple of reasons. One, I, I live in the Isle of Man and we are sort of the first country that's been recognized as a UNESCO biosphere. So we live and breathe the interest and uh, 
community and pride around having this biosphere at where we where we actually live. I was really fortunate to join the community of practice focus group, and it was really important for me because as a leader in an organization, trying to think about where do we start, that community of practice really reinforced to me where do we start as supervisors, and that's I think the way I'm going to come at my few remarks today. And I think for, for many supervisory bodies, this can be very overwhelming. Um, we have competing priorities. Um, many of us are still dealing with the outputs from the financial crisis, indeed, in terms of international standards and now COVID. So I think it's really difficult for supervisors to get this on their agenda. Um, and I think for some of us, and I saw that very clearly from the community of practice, that we're really starting the journey to better understand the long-term impacts of climate change and be it physical, which are more obvious to us, I think, as we, as we you know, look out in the world, but the transitional risks as well. And I think the role of leadership in organizations is really to build on the natural culture of curiosity that exists with supervisors and help to develop the clear strategy and help to make sure that we have the right allocation of resources. So I've sort of set out five preconditions for supervisors to start the conversation. I'm just gonna to touch on those very briefly. I think number one precondition is really to deepen your understanding. Climate change waits for no one. Um, and I think we have to supervisors not to underestimate the skills we already have. You know, we're good at risk assessment. We have strong sort of cultures of stress testing tools in our organization, and we have foundational skills we need to build on. But that being said, we have to develop some subject matter expertise. And that's perhaps where we're all lacking. We're a bit uncomfortable what it means for financial sectors. So we need to pick our champions in our organizations and be it even pick board champions to help us sort of drive the interest and change needed to really embrace these risks and understand these risks. I say be creative because one of the interesting things you'll see that comes up in a lot of the literature is the use of transmission maps. You know, we ask, you know, firms to do scenario testing, the what ifs, and as supervisors, we have to do the what ifs. I think by undertaking those what if exercises, we create a, the ability to better understand how these risks might emerge in our various sectors. So be, be creative. And I think as well, there's a ton of guidance and we can be overwhelmed by the guidance. The Toronto Centre has fantastic guidance, the Network for Greening the Financial System, the PCFD but we have to make it relevant for our jurisdiction and make it scalable. I think that's really critical. I'd say number two for me is really to move it off the horizon risk register. And I say that with a bit of a smile because I think some of us still have it neatly tucked on that horizon risk schedule. And really it's a here and now, it's not a horizon risk. And I, I looked back at Mark Carney's speech of 2015 when he talked about breaking the tragedy of the horizon. And he talked about the dangers of focusing on the present and imposing those costs of climate change on the future. And indeed, that is what's happening. And he recognized that and truly many of these impacts will outlive you know, us as policymakers, supervisors, indeed politicians, but it's the here and now. So I think accepting the fact that this is not a black swan or a green swan, it is here and now. You know, accept that we may have existing tools, but we have to modify our tools to be able to accommodate these risks. We have to accept the fact that we'll have data gaps. There's no perfect information um, around uh, assessing climate risk. And I have to think we have to accept the fact that it will be an open risk on our risk register for a while. This is not going to be an easy fix in terms of for understanding the climate change risk and what we as supervisors need to do. And I think as well, I think I would say it can't be a pet agenda item on our, on our agendas, on our board agendas. Like everyone likes to have 
cyber on their agenda. Everyone likes to have climate change on their agenda. We have to do something about it. It's not good enough just to have it on the agenda anymore. I'd say number three for me is really for what, how I'm gonna approach this in, in the authority is find the friendlies in industry. Um, you know, for some parts of the financial system, they're more advanced than others in terms of their understanding and their, you know, disclosure regimes around financial risks associated with climate change. Seek out those friendlies, you know, leverage their experience. Scour disclosure statements of your firms to understand who's got a better handle than others. Start with bilateral discussions. So really engage so you can help formulate your thoughts on how you're going to approach this on your supervisory agenda. And I would say as well, look outside your natural circle. We tend to stick together, you know, financial sector regulators, but there's lots of good work going on in economies in terms of people who are interested in tax changes, in energy saving. We have a very common interest in terms of developing data and developing and deepening our understanding. So look outside your natural circles and use the tools that we know to collect information. We are fantastic at getting information in terms of surveys, industries, focus groups, use those tools that we're most comfortable with. Number four, start the data journey. What more data? And I think one of the things that supervisors are often overwhelmed with is data. We're drowning in it, but data is essential for deepening our understanding. Disclosures, as we know, are often voluntary, voluntary in, in climate risk and very spotty in terms of consistency. So we really need to be clear on what we need. We have to challenge ourselves on what we're gonna ask for and how we're gonna use it. But we also have to recognize that it's not a once and done exercise and not one size fits all. So be, be mindful of that. As I said, going outside your natural circle, there'd be a common interest in many economies in collecting data. So club together and develop similar taxonomies for how you collect the data and what you're looking for. And I think the climate um, task force and climate related disclosures has been provided a very useful framework to sort of start that data journey around governance, strategy, risk management, metrics and targets. So it's all, all about hard quantitative data. It's a journey through the data sets of firms. And finally, I would say not all green is good. And that's a, a, a funny thing to say, but we have to be really wary of, of greenwashing in our industries. And we, it's okay to be skeptical not about climate change, but about how people will exploit climate change in terms of the kinds of services and products we see in our jurisdictions. And I think like any new and novel area, someone will look for the vulnerabilities and gaps in the system. And as well, I think we have to guard against the keenness of governments to, you know, for green products and to fast tax crack things to the system. And that's a real danger for supervisors. We need to understand the risks. So I always say, go back to first principles for investments, disclosure, 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 and for supervisors, understand the risks. And I think it's okay to challenge the credibility of sustainability, so of, of sustainable products. So in closing, I would just say that I think we have a really important role to play as supervisors. Um, it, it's gonna be a long journey for us. And I think it's okay to admit we're at the start of this. And, and I would strongly encourage people to really join that community of practice and start to reach out beyond their the natural circles to, uh, to deepen their understanding. So that's all I'll say for now, and I'll thank you. Well, well thanks, Karen. You've answered all my questions, so uh, <laughs> we can close this uh, community <laughs> practice now. No. Um, so it's not often we get the benefit of uh, right off the desk of a CEO, so uh, everybody is, is fortunate to have you here. And uh, now we're going to turn to Clive Brill.
Uh, he is a former supervisor and the chair of the Toronto Centre's Banking Advisory Board. And he's an advisor uh, to many organizations around the world. So he brings a global perspective to this conversation. Go ahead, please, Clive. Okay, thank you, Anatol. And good morning, good afternoon, or good evening to all the participants today. Uh, and thank you also to Naresh and Karen for your introductory comments. Uh, so in terms of building on what uh, Naresh and Karen have said, I thought I'd focus primarily on risk management and in particular the risk management standards which you as supervisors should be expecting to see in the firms that you supervise. Uh, so what is it uh, that you should expect to see in those firms? Well, I think first, as Karen said, um, a recognition in those firms of the importance of climate change related risks uh, and a recognition that some of those risks are beginning to build. And if financial institutions don't begin to manage those risks effectively, then they could suffer from some nasty surprises down the way. And that means in turn that uh, those risks uh, the consideration of those risks arising from climate change should be embedded, as Karen said, in the governance arrangements of the firms you supervise, and you should expect to see them reflected there. But what does that mean in practice? What should you be looking for? Well, in a way, it's no different from the way in which they manage other risks. Um, so you would expect to see climate change-related risks beginning to be factored into firms' risk appetite, strategies and business plans. Uh, you would expect to see uh, the establishment of some clear roles and responsibilities at board and senior management level, uh, including the people within the supervised firm who are responsible for oversight of that firm's climate change related risks. Uh, you should begin to see some understanding Karen mentioned this on the part of the board and senior management in terms of identifying and understanding uh, the climate change related risks that they face and the potential impact of those risks on the financial position of that financial institution. Uh, the board and senior management should then maintain effective oversight uh, of the financial institutions uh, climate change related management and disclosure, uh, policies and processes in place across the firm to assess, monitor and report such risk and to ensure that internal controls are in place accordingly. Uh, to develop as part of that a risk management framework to manage those climate change related risks and to consider in particular how those climate change related risks might feed through into the credit risks, insurance risks, market risks, liquidity risks, reputational risks, and indeed litigation risks that the firm may face. Um, the firm should also uh, be considering, uh, with or without uh, intervention from supervisors or governments, uh, what it wants its own policy to be. You know, Naresh mentioned that some asset managers are taking a view and setting themselves targets to invest in assets which themselves are compatible uh, with you know, 
zero carbon emission targets by whatever year they choose. Uh, a number of banks are doing similar exercises with their lending, some insurers doing similar exercises with the way in which they invest uh, the premiums that they gather from their customers. So a firm should be clear uh, about whether it has any such target, and if so, what those targets are, how they intend to achieve them, how they intend to measure whether they've achieved them, and what sort of key performance indicators they're going to use for that purpose. Um, and then within the firm, uh, if, you, if you look at it through the traditional three lines of defense model, for example, you would expect the frontline businesses of the firm to be assessing climate change related risks before taking on new business, uh, particularly for firms and sectors who clearly face high climate change risks like fossil fuels. Uh, the risk management function should monitor whether or not the business are putting on uh, new business, which is consistent with the firm's own uh, risk management of climate change and its own climate change targets, if it has them. Um, and obviously the internal audit function should consider as part of its work, its independent review as the third line of defense, the robustness of those risk management uh, approaches and whether or not the firm is delivering uh, what it says it wants to. And then as both Naresh and Karen mentioned, you would expect firms to be beginning to integrate climate change related risks into their scenario analysis and stress testing uh, to inform their strategy setting, their risk assessment and identification. And in all of that, I think what's interesting um, is we are talking there about supervisors assessing the risk management of financial institutions. Uh, and that is something which supervisors have been doing in the past around different types of risk. And I would therefore suggest that it's not a massive step forward, albeit a very necessary step forward, for supervisors to begin focusing much more on the way in which firms manage their climate change related risks, just as they focus on the way that they manage other types of risk. Uh, and although, as Karen says, it is useful for supervisors to have at least some people within their institution or to develop close links with others in other organizations, uh, that expertise in climate change itself, because that's helpful in terms of beginning to understand the, the way in which those risks might affect individual financial institutions or indeed the financial sector as a whole, uh, it is not necessary for every individual supervisor uh, to be an expert in climate change. Um, this is really bringing to bear that expertise in terms of risk management. How do you do that as a supervisor? No doubt we'll come back to this more uh, in answer to some questions. Uh, but clearly, you know, as Karen said, a good starting point is just to have discussions of this of a reasonably friendly nature uh, either individually with major financial institutions or collectively with trade associations, trade bodies in your countries, but to be using that as a way of trying to begin to identify where you are seeing good practice in this area, where you are seeing less good practice. And as a result of that, to begin to develop uh, guidelines, either for internal purposes or in due course to publish externally to make it absolutely clear 
to your financial institutions what your supervisory expectations are of how they should be managing their risks. Uh, and that is a process which may take a while. Uh, a number of countries which are, are currently looking most developed in this area have been developing all of those things over the last four or five years at least. Some insurance supervisors have been doing this for much longer because insurance companies have been doing this sort of thing for much longer as well. Uh, but I think you know, some important uh, aspects there of building up that guidance. And I'll put up a link on the chat in a moment, but just to mention, I'm not trying to pick out anybody as being necessarily the best, uh, but just interesting that just this month, the Monetary Authority of Singapore uh, has issued guidelines to their industry, separate sets of guidelines, although actually they're very similar to the banks, the insurers, the asset managers, so all of the sectors are covered, uh, just nine or 10 pages for each sector as to what they would regard as being good practice for risk management in dealing with what they call environmental risks. So if you are thinking about developing such guidelines, if you don't already have them in place, if you are thinking of having these discussions with the firms you supervise and you're thinking, well, hang on a minute, where do I start? What sort of questions do I ask the firm? You know, that is just one example from a particular country, you know, which would not be a bad thing just to call up on your screen and take a look at for half an hour. Um, I think you'll learn quite a lot from it and it would give you a very good starting point for moving forward in your discussions with firms. Um, there's probably more, but I'd like to say, Anatole, about issues such as disclosure, uh, about things which supervisors could do beyond uh, monitoring the risk management capabilities of the firms they supervise. But let me end there and perhaps pick up on some of those subjects in due course in response to questions. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you, Clive. Those were, uh, that was very insightful. Um, so we, we're an audience-focused group here today, and we've got a couple of questions in the um, uh, chat. So, and, and let me please just take this housekeeping moment to remind you if you have questions to put them in the chat. Um, Catherine asks, uh, would it be beneficial for international standard uh, setting bodies to create a common taxonomy? And uh, she also wonders, are there any surveys or incentives that uh, supervisors can use to uh, help assess uh, the uh, uh, or promote climate initiatives. Um, Karen, do you want to take a first crack at uh, this? Sure, I mean, lots of areas to explore there, Catherine. I would say, I mean, the one thing I found in starting the journey here, I guess, is just the, I think the benefit of, of spending some time with the different organizations. So we joined the Network for Green and Financial System, I'd say about, eight months ago, and it's been a real wealthy source of information for us and understanding sort of what other jurisdictions supervisors are doing, um, the approaches to sort of using survey tools, and they've issued some very, very useful documents, most recently the call for action has been just in the last little while. So I would say that's the great place for supervisors to start. The tools are available, but I think the one thing I would suggest as well, looking at some of the things that are available, you have to really think about in the context of your jurisdiction. So 
you know, the securities industry is looking at IOSCO is doing a lot of good work around, you know, what sort of where supervisors are spending their time. And in fact, they just did a recent survey to understand that, to survey sort of um, various jurisdictions to understand what kind of work is occupying supervisors. So how much time we're spending on disclosure work, how much time on sort of green investments and greenwashing, um, you know, how much time on capital and looking at capital rules. So I think that's where the, the starting point, Catherine, would be from, from my perspective. Thank you. Any thoughts uh, that you'd like to add, uh, Naresh? Just to mention, uh, I, I think it would be great to have a, an international body, a truly international body, get involved in the taxonomy work. As we know, in terms of the green taxonomy work, the EU is perhaps the most advanced in this area. Uh, others are now taking this mantle up and um, some seeking to build on the excellent work the EU has done. But I, I fully agree that uh, if an international body like the, like the UN, for example, and one of its specialized arms were to take this up, this would really help us to move forward. Thanks. Thank you. Um, uh, Clive, uh, Catherine has a follow-up question, which uh, give you the opportunity to loop in some of the other thoughts. Uh, and, and her concern uh, is, um, the connection with uh, between countries um, uh, and communicating their uh, initiatives. Uh, you see a lot of, um, from your work, both with the Toronto Centre and others, you see a, a lot of activity going on in, in different countries. Is there um, a value in uh, communicating across countries and, and supervisors uh, um, on these? Uh, yes, I, mean, so I, think, I think there is. Uh, and I think it comes back to the original question about taxonomy. Um, you know, this is a very difficult subject indeed, but I think it's one that people do need to begin to grapple with more intensively. And I think it's absolutely right to suggest that this should be done at an international level. Uh, let me try and explain what I mean here. Uh, if you are an investor, and someone comes along to you and says, would you like to invest in my fund? Because my fund is investing in what is typically called these days ESG compliant investments. And you think, well, that sounds good. Environmental, social, governance. What could possibly go wrong? Um, but you might ask yourself the question, uh, well, hang on a minute you're offering me an ESG fund, what are you actually investing in? And what criteria do you use on which to base your investments? And certainly something which I've observed, and I did a little bit of research in this because once I observe something, I get a bit hooked and start looking it up on Google. And what I do find very interesting is that most of the funds which offer themselves for doing ESG investments never explain to the investor even the criteria they use for what counts as ESG. Sometimes they list the investments that they've made. You know, what are their largest shareholdings in? And you read down the list of firms in which they've invested and you think, you've got to be kidding. These people cannot possibly tick those boxes. What is going on here? And that may be, as Karen mentioned, what is called greenwashing, which is basically they're trying to fool investors, that is basic mis-selling. 
Or it may be something a bit more difficult than that, which is where taxonomies come in, which is, you know, now put yourself in the position of that asset management firm, put yourself into the position that Narish was mentioning about firms wanting to invest only in companies who will be, you know, zero carbon emitters by 2030, 2050, whichever year it might be. How do you know? So you look at the disclosures that the companies make. And I must say, I would certainly be pretty puzzled uh, to know how an asset manager looking at those disclosures and any other information which the company may provide privately to the asset manager as to how the asset manager can assure himself or herself that those companies meet whatever criteria the asset manager wants to use. Um, and there's no doubt that following, for example, the Financial Stability Board Task Force on climate change related disclosures goes some of the way there, but it certainly doesn't go all of the way there. If you read the disclosures of even those companies who are selected as being good practice by that task force in their annual reports, uh, it's still not clear to me really how you could know quite what those companies are doing. You know, they may have their own targets, but you have no way of knowing whether they're going to meet them or not. Um, so, you know, as you move down the list of players in this, the investor doesn't know, the asset manager or the bank or the insurance company may not know enough about the companies that they're investing in. Um, you know, and therefore something like a taxonomy ought to help uh, because it all, you know, what it ought to lay down is, first of all, you know, what should definitely be disclosed, not just recommended as by the FSB task force, but definitely disclosed and mandated by securities regulators where any company is listed. Um, and then use those disclosures in an agreed way, uh, you know, to try and work backwards to this question about, well, which companies do or do not meet these various criteria. Um, and all I'm talking about there is the disclosure bit of it. I'm not saying that financial services firms have to best to companies which meet those things. That is, at least in most countries, their own choice as to whether to do so. All I'm pointing out is that even if they choose to do so, and a number of banks have made similar commitments to the ones that Naresh talked about in terms of asset managers. Um, but you know, how can those banks know that they're meeting those commitments? How can supervisors observing those banks or asset managers know that they're meeting their commitments? How can investors and depositors know that they're meeting their commitments is, I think, a very important question, which disclosure ought to be the answer to, but I don't think we're there yet. And it may be that consistent uh, disclosures imposed internationally, because after all, people invest and lend across borders, so this matters in terms of a cross-border perspective, you know, somehow we have to help that process along. And I do think there's a role there, particularly for securities regulators, uh, to think long and hard about how that process could be improved. Because at the moment, I think, frankly, it's not working very well at all. Thanks for that, Clive. Uh, so our next question is from Gord Piercy, and uh, he's uh, making inquiries about uh, the setup in, in regulators, supervisors about risk specialists and leveraging committees and internal and external experts. And I think I heard Clive uh, say that uh, you don't have, everybody doesn't have to be a climate expert uh, in a supervisor. 
Um, Naresh, are, are you seeing uh, experts like yourself uh, being engaged by financial institutions uh, or uh, supervisors uh, more or less? Uh, and what role are you playing in, in those organizations or uh, are your colleagues playing? So the answer I think is uh, yes, but slowly. While, while it is increasing, I think the, the uptake and the demand for inputs and expertise is rather slow. I think this is a result of a, of a bunch of factors. I get a sense, and um, Clive and Karen can correct me if I'm wrong, but I get a sense, especially across the developing world in which we've been doing more work, in which I've been more engaged. In the developing world, uh, supervisors and regulators are not yet on this topic. They are not yet uh, really addressing this, this question. And I think uh, uh, advocacy is really crucial here. So rather than waiting on the financial regulators and supervisors, you know, to be asking people like myself and people like the Toronto Center and so on for support, I think there needs to be an amount of advocacy where they become more aware of these issues and the important role they have to play. I think many regulators and supervisors might be concluding that the industry, the regulated entities are the ones to be taking this on and most importantly, government. You see, in many of these countries, governments haven't done their job either. They have not put in place the enabling framework. They have not put in place the legislative framework that requires the shifts, you know, the transition shifts we are talking about. So there are two big issues, I would say, or the answer is threefold. One is no, they are, the, the, the uptake is far too slow. One is awareness. But that will only really come, I believe, when governments put in place the legislative and enabling framework. Um, until then, some advocacy work will be very helpful. And it will have to work, both regulators and supervisors working in tandem with the regulated entities. I think that's, uh, that's our only hope because time is really running out. Thank you, uh, Naresh. Uh, uh, Karen, can we peer inside uh, the, uh, the Isle of Man Authority and, and how are you thinking about uh, integrating climate expertise in, uh, in your uh, supervisory authority? Well, I have to say we did tap into an expert. Clive, I'm going to use your name. Clive came to speak to us about a year ago, I think, Clive. Um, to talk about climate change. And, you know, we, we, did, we let it sit for a while because it was fascinating, oh my goodness. Um, you know, we hadn't thought about that. And then it sort of set on, I say, a horizon risk agenda for some time. And um, I think it's been, um, you know, and the community of practice that I joined with the Toronto Centre really brought home to me, and similar to what Naresh is saying, the role of leaders and governments in setting the frameworks to have this happen. I think what's happening in a lot of jurisdictions and ours as well is the fact we're very focused as we should be on the physical risks of climate change. So we're concerned about sort of our shorelines, we're concerned about our, the quality of our air, we're concerned about alternative um, energy um, for, for, the, for our jurisdictions, but we haven't yet joined the dots as economies around the impact of transitioning our economies to the net zero world or the low carbon world. And I think that's where we're missing a bit of a trick. And that's why 
when I reflected on my comment today, I thought a lot about sort of reaching outside our circles. And so to Gordon's question about those committees, we have some real champions in our, in our, in our community, in the financial sector actually, who are very much involved in the physical risks area of climate change and great, great, great community initiatives. We've got to start engaging them on the transitional risk conversation. So I'm absolutely a big believer in reaching out outside of our, our, our sort of our, 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 our closed world sometimes as being financial sector supervisors and looking to the, the greater economies, people in the greater economy to really sort of leverage their experience and their interest. And I just think that, you know, we haven't pulled it all together um, as, um, as, as jurisdiction. So for me, um, as a, in this organization, it, it won't be about having a bunch of experts in the organization, but feeding people to get them curious, to start to explore. And as we start to explore, we can feel more comfortable and confident to have the conversation. So as I say, Clive, I use your name, but it was really helpful for us. It started us thinking, but most recently, it's really brought it home and sort of spending time with others um, on this very topic. Thank you. So um, while we're waiting for uh, audience questions, let me turn uh, to uh, my, my questions. Uh, I'm going to stay with the, uh, the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosure. And in their 2017 final report, one of the most uh, significant uh, observations was that uh, it is, uh, climate change is perhaps misunderstood and that uh, risks that organizations face today on climate change. Um, many organizations incorrectly perceive the implications of climate change to be long-term and therefore not necessarily relevant to the decisions made today. H how can supervisors help overcome these perceptions? Uh, and let's start with the, uh, the um, uh, uh, sustainability side with, uh, with Dr. Singh uh, and then move through our, our colleagues here, our panelists. The, um... Two levels to answer that, I think, uh, Anatole. One is uh, understanding the issues we really face and understanding that climate change is no longer on the horizon. In fact, that tragedy of the horizons that Karen mentioned in quoting Mark Carney is with us now. The, and, uh, and bringing that data home is I think very critical. I think people are not getting, are not seeing the data and, uh, and making the link to uh, channel and informational flows where decision makers really get to see this information uh, might help. That's one. The second thing is, I think consumers have to have a way of getting their concerns reach the boards of many of these institutions and organizations, whether they be regulators and supervisors or commercial entities, industrial entities. If you look at the disclosures challenge that we, that we face, Barclays, for example, the bank indicated that their shifts really started when their board became engaged and their board became engaged when a number of consumers of of customers of the bank started to write to the board and say, what is the bank doing on these issues? So when, unless these institutions begin um, you know, to, to feel that co consumers are concerned, 
that the world is in fact uh, crying out for change here, um, that the, the, the change is rather slow. And the third, um, the third point I'd make is, I think the time has come for the TCFD uh, guidelines to become mandatory. I know there is a debate on this and people are saying not yet, not yet. The voluntary era or the transition period in my own view and in view of some of my colleagues, uh, that transition was good when it was voluntary and we learned a lot, but now the time has come for being mandatory. Um, some countries are moving in this direction. New Zealand is one example that has, uh, is making the TFC, the CCFT guidelines mandatory. There will be pros and cons, but there is no time for us to wait anymore. So those would be some of the suggestions I would, I would uh, want to put uh, on the table for us to begin to move forward. Thank you, uh, Dr. Singh. Uh, uh, Clive, uh, Karen, any thoughts? Um, yeah, just to pick up on a couple of things. Um, perhaps I can just come back, first of all, because it links, I think, to the earlier question on expertise. Um, I made the point, and I'll stick to it, I think, that you don't need everyone to be an expert on climate change. Uh, supervisors should be reasonably familiar with assessing risk management. But clearly, there are some places um, in this process where you do need uh, greater expertise. And one of them, I think, picks up on this point that we're discussing, which is if a firm comes back to you when you have your conversation about how it's uh, beginning to integrate climate change risks into its risk management and says, look, there's no need to. Either it's all too far ahead, so we'll do it before we get there, or, yes, I've read all this stuff about climate change. I'm not actually a climate change denier. But the thing I'm denying is that it'll have any impact on me as a firm. Uh, you know, I don't lend or invest in anybody who's going to get affected by climate change. And I think where you need the expertise there, because that's not about risk management, that's, that's, that's more about the nature of the risks themselves, as Narish says, you know, is someone to go back to that firm and help the supervisor to go back and say, well, look, hang on a minute. Do we actually believe you when you say this? You know, have you not noticed uh, the pattern of weather-related events as a result of climate change? You know, storms, hurricanes, temperature changes, whatever it might be. Have you not noticed the impact that that's having on certain areas of the country? Uh, agricultural production, whatever it might be, rising sea levels. And is it not the case that you lend to or invest in uh, a number of households, companies, whatever, who are actually quite exposed to those risks. You know, you are a bank, you do a lot of lending to people who live next to the seashore and sea levels are rising. What's actually going to happen to the credit quality of your lending uh, when those people's houses very regrettably get washed away? Uh, or what's going to happen to lend to you if you lend to or invest in certain types of agricultural production, which will no longer be viable uh, if temperatures rise by two or three degrees. So, you know, you need expertise there, I think, to be able to carry the debate back to the supervised institutions to say, hang on a minute, you know, you just haven't got this right. You're not, you know, you're not um, recognizing these risks that are coming your way. Uh, similarly with the transition risks that Naresh mentioned, um, you know, as and when uh, renewables become 
more efficient and effective as and when um, you know, government start imposing the sorts of levels of carbon taxes which the IMF has recommended, which are way above what's imposed at the moment. But if and when that is done, um, all of those things are going to have a pretty massive impact on some existing firms, particularly fossil fuel producers. So if you're sitting there lending in or investing in fossil, fossil fuel producers, those transition risks could actually come back and affect you really quite quickly. They may not be long-term at all. They may be you know, literally within the next five years, which may not be long enough for you to uh, you know, change, your, change your business model and strategy. So I think that expertise becomes very important there. And I think it's why it links the two questions because that expertise then helps uh, in terms of identifying the risks. Another area I just mentioned, you know, stress and scenario testing. Uh, a lot of work being done out there, and I think this reinforces Karen's point that there's a lot of expertise out there which people can use quite easily and quickly um, to say, well, actually, let's think through what could be the transmission mechanism as a result of a temperature increase of one degree centigrade, two degrees centigrade, three degrees centigrade, four degrees centigrade. Um, and for each of those, what might start to begin happening, which would affect uh, the riskiness of financial institutions in a particular country, in a particular region, uh, lending to or investing in particular types of borrower. Um, and there's a lot of work out there to underpin that kind of work. Um, there's a very good Toronto Centre note uh, written by Michael Herfman, which was published earlier this year on climate change and stress testing. You know, which pointed out the ways in which supervisors could begin to use those scenarios. And that's not just about supervisors doing their own stress test, it's also about supervisors saying to their major supervised firms, look, what stress tests are you doing? And why are you not getting the same sorts of uh, results from those stress tests that other people are? You know, it's because you're not taking seriously enough for potential transmission mechanisms which could arise from those scenarios. Uh, so I think, you know, that kind of expertise can lead you into those ways of thinking, uh, which then help enormously with the risk management, because after all, risk management has to start with the identification of the risks. And that's where the expertise can be helpful. But once the risks are identified, it becomes, you know, fairly standard, frankly, risk, risk management, which supervisors should be able to focus on and engage with firms on because, you know, that's really their bread and butter day job. I, I Thank you. Uh, oh, Go ahead, uh, Karen. Uh, uh, we, we, I thought that you'd covered that off quite well in your five point opening five points, but please. <laughs> well, now I'm going to have six or seven based on the conversation today, but no, I just can't help but comment on this because I think this is an area where we really, you know, have struggled. And I think part of it is sort of the overwhelming nature you know, I say it's a very tall order for supervisors because climate change is global. What can we do as a single supervisor? I think that's what we have to help supervisors get over this perception. And when I look at the framework that's been set up by the task force on climate risk disclosures, it really sets out a framework that we can walk through quite nicely because it's not just about getting the hard data, but it's starting the conversations that we're more comfortable with around governance and risk management. And that's an area where supervisors have spent a lot of time. And I think that's really, really important. And absolutely, you know, Naresh, in terms of um, you know, tragedy of the horizons, how do we create that sense of urgency without scaring supervisors? Because this will be on the agenda 
of the next generation of supervisors, but hopefully in a way in which we just simply have you know, common taxonomy, common disclosures. We're all over this stuff. We're seeing ourselves getting close to targets. But for the supervisors of today, we're the ones starting this, and that's why it's so overwhelming. I think that's what they, so I think that it's being able to create room on the agenda of priorities for supervisors as well, which we're not often good at. We just pile things on top of other things. So making sure that we resource our supervisory authorities appropriately to be able to tackle these big changes. It's not just about the financial sector anymore. It's about bigger global issues. I think that's where you know, we have to make sure that we, we um, accommodate this. Great, thank you. So our, our next, uh, and just a reminder for everybody, please use the chat for questions. Um, from Claire, she's looking for some practical advice uh, and I'm gonna make this an open question. Uh, first come, first serve for the answer. How, how can supervisors reach out and explain the more esoteric climate change transitional risks to the economy and to, to consumers? Who would like to tackle this one? Uh, maybe I can just lead off uh, and, and, and pick up from where Clive had left off with this role of expertise that he mentioned. And one, um, one answer would be, um, if somewhat self-serving, is that here is where uh, use of some expertise that is not normally found, you know, the climate expertise that you might need, it's, it's there, it's available. The, the Toronto Centre might be a source, but there are people who are engaged in most countries. NGOs are engaged, climate experts, universities, who, who know this stuff and, um, you know, and engage them. Uh, and you don't have to have all that expertise yourself as a supervisor or regulator and, uh, and then, you know, get it going. So that would be a, a bridge that I would suggest might be useful. Anybody else? I, would no, just I think back. it's a difficult one. I think explaining transitional risk is, is not easy. Mm -hmm. uh, because you're saying that there is an event out there, such as introduction of a carbon tax or development of renewal technology, that event is going to be very disruptive to some companies, particularly fossil fuel producers. And that therefore, if you're a consumer who invests directly or indirectly through asset management um, in one of those companies, you'd better watch out because that disruption could have a serious impact. Uh, you know, we've already seen some major oil producers who just 10 years ago were probably one of the leading companies in uh, certain stock exchange indices, you know, beginning to disappear without trace for precisely this reason. So if you're an investor in those companies, you probably haven't done very well out of them recently. Um, so, you know, again, this is already happening, which is the interesting thing, but you're not observing the risk directly. It's, it's the impact of those events on a company which has particular exposures and the impact is of uncertain magnitude, uncertain timing. Uh, and it's quite difficult, I think, to explain that to investors or consumers. Uh, I think some supervisors will find it quite difficult to explain that to the firms they supervise, let alone consumers or investors. Um, so, you know, let's not underestimate the difficulty in explaining it. And it may be that that'll become easier to explain to consumers once you've had those conversations with supervised firms about how they manage uh, transition type risks uh, around climate change. 
you may learn something from that. You may gain some examples of that, which you could then use if you wanted to introduce that into whatever sort of financial literacy one's talking about here. It's probably also the case that those companies are pretty bad at explaining that transition risk in their own literature. Uh, you know, it's not something you really want to do as a major oil producer to say, actually, if the government in the countries in which I operate suddenly introduced a carbon tax at the level recommended by the IMF, uh, we'd be out of business. Uh, you know, you're going to hide that somewhere in your risk disclosures. You're not exactly going to parade that on page one of your annual report. So it's quite unlikely, I think, that the average investor would ever find any useful information about that, if at all, uh, in those companies' uh, disclosures. And that's a, you know, that's a sad fact, but it's one that I think uh, supervisors need to take into consideration. Thank you. Uh, Karen, did you want to add on? Uh... Just maybe a couple of things. And one thing I would say as well, I, I go back to reaching outside of your sort of financial sector community, because, you know, we've hired, for example, the Isle of Man, there's been a, num a number of big pieces of work done on climate risk change and impact for the jurisdiction. And I think that trying to convince policymakers to sort of expand that conversation and expand that piece of work would be extremely helpful to, I think, supervisor, us as a supervisory authority. So, you know, building on what we've already done, taking it from the physical onto the uh, financial sector risk and, and risk to the economy, to transition the economy. The other thing I'd say as well is case studies are fantastic. And I think about sort of the um, transmission and doing mind mapping on these sorts of things, but there's a real value in sort of developing case studies so supervisors can observe what impacts look like in sort of typical types of firms in terms of be it securities firms, banks, insurance companies. Um, I think that's critical, you know, reinsurance firms. But I think that perhaps, perhaps a piece of work for the Toronto Centre, but really workshopping this and taking supervisors through sort of a typical, what it would, how would it look over the longer term in a, in a, in a typical balance sheet. Um, and what kind of questions you'd want to ask a supervisor. So I think there's a fantastic opportunity here to help guide supervisors to those conversations. So I think those are a couple places to start for, for me. Well, thanks for that. Uh, is yeah, this not ahead, a great uh, opportunity for, uh, for us to look at one of the functions of this community of practice, having regular capacity building sort of virtual workshops for now and um, which we pick specific tasks, challenges that supervisors face, mm -hmm. and really, as Karen was saying, workshop it until it becomes quite clear. Absolutely, and uh, we'll be asking for uh, uh, more members to come forward uh, for the community of practice and the insights, and, and uh, Karen, thank you for your uh, uh, mentioning that you're directly involved in helping to get the topic on the agenda for this discussion, and so others can be a part of that. So let's uh, turn to um, uh, Stephen Armra's uh, question about uh, are uh, developing countries ready for, for the disclosure requirements? And uh, is there uh, an approach that they should take? And I guess this is a little bit of advisory work. Uh, any, any thoughts? Uh, uh, let's start with uh, Clive. Uh, you're, uh, you're in this kind of role already. Yeah, well, my simple answer to that would be yes. And the uh, task force recommendations were designed in part to be implemented in developing economies. Uh, and the 
annual report which the task force publishes uh, always reports on what they see as the rate of take-up across different regions of the world. Um, and it is true that the rate of take-up in developing economies is slower than the rate of take-up of these recommendations in developed economies. But there's nothing in the recommendations themselves which is driving that. Um, the, the, the recommendations are deliberately generic. Uh, they can be applied proportionally by, by the companies making the disclosures. You know, there's nothing stopping companies in the developing uh, countries uh, from following the recommendations and making those disclosures. The question I often ask on Toronto Centre courses when I'm talking about climate change is to ask the supervisors, have you done anything in practice to encourage uh, companies, particularly companies listed on your local stock exchange, to make these recommendations. Uh, you know, Naresh was saying, and I, I, I have enormous sympathy with this, but uh, there may well be a case for making those recommendations mandatory. But let's just go back a stage and ask the question, are you as a supervisor, particularly a security supervisor, even encouraging listed companies to make these recommendations, uh, to, to meet these recommendations? And if not, why not? Uh, so I think there are things which supervisors and regulators can do to, to you know, move that on a bit. Uh, and as I say, encourage local companies to follow those recommendations and make the disclosures accordingly. Um, it would probably be a little bit presumptive to move straight to making them mandatory in those countries. Um, although I hope we do get to that point at some stage. But I think the first stage in those countries should be the encouragement uh, for companies to do that. And as I say, unfortunately, the reports from the task force itself uh, show that the, you know, the rate of following the recommendations is much lower in some countries than others. And I suspect that may be in part because they're not getting enough of a push from their supervisors and regulators. Thank you. Naresh, uh, you've, uh, you said that you're doing work in, in these jurisdictions. Uh, can you uh, add to that? Yes, indeed. The, um, I think the when I said mandatory, I was not implying mandatory overnight. And uh, to set a stage, a date, 10 years down the road, five years down the road, by which these will become fully mandatory with milestones along the way. And I'm quite sympathetic to the challenge of uh, capacity in developing countries. I've spent the last three decades working on building capacity for development purposes in developing countries. And the, the way I would approach it is to look, you would have to do a contextual country by country. You know, what do you have and what do you need? Uh, what is required to comply with these uh, guidelines, the framework rather, it's more a framework as Clive was saying, um, of the TCFD. Is it data management? Is it data collection? You know, that kind of thing. Is it data analysis? And maybe it's all of the above. And if there is a capacity a lack in that then, once we have done that analysis, because you have a timeline and milestones to achieve, you then begin to analyze and to build the capacity so that in five years, we know where we are and we are getting somewhere. So that's the kind of uh, recommendation I would put. And I think it's very doable. All through, uh, you know, when developing countries need to make a policy shift to change priorities in a given sector, 
it might be agriculture, it might be sanitation, it could be uh, whatever sector of the economy. When policies are put in place by governments to make change, either through a disaster or proactive policy, capacities are always required to be built if that thing has not been done before. And, uh, and the developed world, and you know, they, there is now money being put together, the, 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 uh, the climate fund and, and other sources of funding are being put together, not fully adequate yet, but quite a bit of money coming forward for mitigation, much more than adaptation. So the cry continues for much more resources globally for adaptation. And, uh, and then these developing countries would be in a position to demand or to request more resources to build that capacity and move forward. So I, I, would, I would say that uh, building the capacity is important and is doable. Thank you. So uh, Claire has a question in there, but uh, that's her second one. So let's turn to Judith's uh, first question. Uh, and she's uh, concerned about uh, risk assessment and risk quantification. And in the, uh, if disclosure is not doing its job, um, is there a view to developing risk-based uh, uh, capital charges for climate? And uh, as the uh, working supervisor in the room, Karen, do, do you want to uh, take this one uh, first? Sure. Thanks. Hi, Judith. Um, great question. I think uh, you know. I think I think a couple of things. One is it's there are multiple dimensions to this, and so I think. I think not one is sort of supersedes the other. So I think disclosure has a really important role in terms of keeping firms accountable and being able to track, you know, where we are, how we're moving towards the goals of, in the case of an asset firms, you know, the net zero goal. So I think disclosure is a must have. It just depends on where it comes in the spectrum. I think for capital, there's a couple of ways to look at it. I mean, certainly, um, you know, we want to create incentives for transition. And so there are ways to create incentives through capital charges for more green investments. And that goes to your point about risk assessment. We have to understand, you know, the, 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 the investments, the products, the assets to be able to understand the appropriateness of the risk weight. So absolutely, I think capital has a really important role to play in it. Equally so, we have to incent the better behavior and, and sort of create Sort of capital charges for those who perhaps aren't moving along the spectrum the same way. And so I think risk assessment quantifying sort of the risk is an extremely important tool for supervisors as they move through um, better understanding the climate change risk and the transitional risk and fiscal risk. So it, it'll always have an important role. I think it's, it's just part of the toolkit for supervisors, but absolutely. Uh, Clive, uh, any thoughts you'd like to add? Uh, yeah, certainly. So I think there are probably you know, three different uh, questions <laughs> hidden within this, which is which is always challenging. Um, you know, first, how how big a focus should there be on the risk assessment and risk quantification part of it? Well, I think a lot, because to me, you know, that is the very very basics of this. Um, you know, the one the one absolutely certain thing that any supervisor would expect a supervised firm to be doing is assessing its own risks, uh, quantifying those risks, uh, setting a risk appetite to decide how much of that risk it wants to take on and making sure it doesn't take on any more than that. And of course, holding sufficient capital, liquidity and other resources 
uh, to be able to meet those risks should they begin to crystallize. So, you know, number one, risk assessment and risk quantification, the sort of things we were talking about at the outset, I think is really important. Uh, number two, disclosure. Uh, well, of course, disclosure covers many different things. There are many different types of disclosure and disclosure focusing on different purposes. So, you know, one type of disclosure we've talked about is, uh, you know, disclosure by firms, corporates generally, not just financial institutions, to enable investors to make sensible decisions, depending on, you know, the investor's own view of what he or she wants to invest in. So do the disclosures help those investors who want to invest in particular types of firm, uh, who want to reflect in their investments particular types of environmental and climate change related risks? You know, do the disclosures help them do that? And I think at the moment we're some way from that, as I said. Another type of disclosure, it's the same basic disclosure but used for a different purpose, is if a financial institution wants to lend or invest against a particular risk appetite and set of targets and objectives. You know, it needs disclosures from its prospective customers uh, to decide who to lend to, who to invest in. Um, so, you know, disclosure has a multitude of purposes and it's just possible, yes, that good disclosure and with sufficient investors who want to do that in terms of the nature of their investments, put those two together and you begin incrementally you know, this is a pretty slow moving process to change the nature of lending and investment over time. So disclosure is quite important for facilitating that change. It doesn't create the change. Just disclosing doesn't make any difference. It's disclosing in a way which enables people to lend or invest uh, in a particular way, should they choose to do so. Um, and then I think the, the third part of the question to which disclosure again is partly related uh, is more about should supervisors and regulators be doing something over and above focusing on risk management and good disclosure? Uh, and, you know, that's a great question. My only problem with the question, in a sense, is, as Naresh was saying, there's a lot of supervisors and regulators who aren't yet doing the basics. You know, so let's not jump ahead too far too quickly. Let's get the basics of risk management and disclosure right first. But if you've got those right, then yes. It's, it's possible for supervisors and regulators to ask themselves a question, first of all, just in terms of risk sensitivity. Again, not necessarily looking to change the world as such, but just risk sensitivity. Is it the case that certain types of exposure are becoming riskier? And that should be reflected in risk sensitive risk weightings. Uh, up to now, you know, people like the Basel Committee have said, we don't want to take any account of climate change related type risks in risk weightings uh, because we don't want to give a low risk weight to green lending because actually a lot of that lending is very risky. You know, if you're lending to an unproved new technology around energy renewables, that's a very risky exposure, potentially. You might lose your money. Uh, equally, uh, some of the lending, you know, Daresh called it brown, dirty. I'm not quite sure what the correct description is. You know, some of that may look like undesirable type lending, but it may not be risky lending. You know, you're lending to a massive multinational with vast reserves of both cash and fossil fuels, uh, and they're not going to go bust tomorrow, even with the transition risks. 
Um, so is that risk sensitive? Where I think it does become risk sensitive is when you put all the physical risks and transition risks together uh, and you bring forward the horizon, then I think it probably is legitimate for supervisors and regulators to begin discussing the question, should we actually have higher risk weights for some of the risks which are subject to these physical and transitional risks? Uh, because actually that is reflecting the underlying risk. You know, this is not being political. Um, this is not trying to direct lending in a particular way. It is simply saying, if you make this sort of lending, the risk is absolutely higher. Therefore, you should hold more capital against it. Uh, so I suspect that is a debate that we will see being played out over the months and years to come. I'm not sure it's very high up the Basel Committee agenda, but I think it probably should be, uh, and probably in the next few years will be. Um, you know, can I tell you now what those risk rates should be? No, uh, but should we be beginning to move in that direction? I think probably yes, particularly, as I say, in terms of a higher risk rate, where you can justifiably point to higher uh, risks being taken by banks and insurers and others lending to or investing in. That type of that type of company, that type of exposure. Um, so I suspect yes, that is coming down the road. Uh, and personally, I think yes, that probably should be coming down the road. But you know, let's see, let's see how that debate pans out. But I think it's definitely a debate which should take place. Great, thanks. Uh, that was a that was a, a comprehensive answer, uh, Clive and, and Karen. Um, last question from the uh, the audience. Uh, we're picking up uh, Claire's last uh, question, and, and I'm going to put this to to you, uh, Naresh. Um, the 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 difference between demographics, uh, where one might say the the older demographic is not as attuned to climate risks, but they have the capital to invest and influence, whereas the younger demographic uh, may be more concerned about the horizon. Uh, with less uh, economic influence. Um, uh, what, what's your sense, uh, because you're working in this uh, 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 area, uh, do you have any, uh, is it that clear cut uh, or is it uh, a problem all the, all the way around? Yeah, the, um, I, I have to admit that uh, this would be conjecture on my part because I don't know uh, any surveys that have been actually done on demographics. So I can't speak to the data in, in a very scientific way, but from my own observations and engagement in this field of work, I, um, I would say that there is something to that question. The, but maybe the, um, it's a middle chunk. I think the older people, and I'm saying now that I'm, let's say people over 60, and people moving into a retirement zone or, or beginning, you know, people who have a sort of done their uh, life's work, they have enough savings, they are feeling uh, quite comfortable in a way. I think they are concerned and they have the, the room, the space to be concerned. The younger people similarly are extremely engaged. And as we know, they are, uh, they are the hope for the planet in many ways. But there, I think there was a middle chunk between this older and younger, where people are now trying, you know, to build families and their priorities are economic, economic and economic and economic, and therefore financial. And it's that demographic that most of the work I suspect has to be done with. Uh, 
you know, the people who are in young households and building there. And one can, you know, uh, be sympathetic to, to the, and understand that we all had to build homes and, and families at some point. But, but that, that process, that, that's severe. And, and, and they might be people who are making a lot of the investments as well at this time. And if they continue to make the investments in things which exacerbate climate change, then we would uh, be on a, on, a, on, a, on a very slightly slippery slope. We would be in, in deep trouble. And that demographic needs a lot of attention and engagement. That, that would be my sort of uh, gut feeling um, as to what's going on here. So I would not let off the hook, the older and younger demographics, they have important work to do. And, uh, and you know, the young people in Canada, bunch of young people as elsewhere, taking the federal government to court because they claim that the federal government of Canada is not doing enough uh, to protect their charter rights to the right to life. And, um, and others are doing the same thing. So the young people are, are quite engaged and I think older folks are also, but what do we do with this uh, maybe 20 to 60 demographic? And that's, that's, uh, that's the one. And since you're in that demographic, Anatole, um, one would, would leave it for you to take some action. <laughs> yeah, nice of, nice of you to say so, but uh, I think I, I, I might not be quite there. Um, so, I'm going to wrap up uh, with uh, one last question. Uh, somebody very wise gave me this uh, question to ask uh, this group. Supervisors like to understand outcomes and judge the effectiveness of these outcomes. Given the, uh, that effective mitigation against climate change is a long-term gain, how should supervisors measure incremental success? Uh, so let me start with Clive, just a couple of minutes on the, uh, it's a, a lot, I could spend a lot of time on this. A couple of pieces of advice to the supervisors uh, still on the call. Uh, yeah, thanks, Anatole. Well, I think consistent with uh, my previous answers and indeed those of other panelists, um, I think the first thing you would hope to observe uh, is you know, this business about much better risk management by the firms you supervise. You know, this is the this is the bread and butter work, as I say, of a supervisor. How well do firms assess and manage the risks that they face? Um, and I think incrementally, uh, what you would expect to see over time, and hopefully at a rapid enough pace, uh, is firms beginning to grasp that, uh, recognise those risks, identify the risks, uh, decide what, if anything, they want to do about those risks, and then do it. So, you know, the basics of risk management, you know, similarly, the basics of good disclosure. Uh, over time, you would want more and more companies and financial institutions within that uh, to disclose more and more better information um, about the climate risk that they are creating and how they are managing that. And when I say climate risk they are creating, I include within that disclosures by financial institutions of the climate risks that they are financing. Uh, again, this is, a, this is a very, very uh, uh, new field for disclosures. It's not even covered by the FSB task force. There's no requirement from the FSB task force recommendations uh, for financial services firms to disclose uh, the extent to which they are financing climate change. Uh, but interestingly enough, I think that is something which investors in financial institutions, 
depositors, policyholders, and other customers may begin to focus on more and more as time goes on. So again, I think I would hope to see in terms of an output, uh, some incremental improvements in disclosure. Um, but, you know, one final point here, which I think has sort of underpinned the discussion. Uh, you know, you cannot expect the financial sector, however well supervised and regulated, uh, itself to make by itself a massive difference to what is happening out there in terms of climate change. You know, the things which are going to make a genuinely big difference to the pace uh, and direction of climate change are governmental actions, mm. such as imposing uh, carbon taxes and the like, uh, such as spending money on adaptation policies, uh, such as investing in renewables and renewable technologies. Uh, those are the things which are going to make a big difference to whether or not countries meet the ambitious targets that they've set themselves uh, under the Paris Agreement that Naresh mentioned at the outset. So I don't think we will be able to see very clearly or measure very clearly uh, the impact of any actions taken by supervisors or regulators on climate change itself. Uh, but I do think we can expect to see outputs in terms of quality of risk management by supervised firms and quality of disclosures by all firms. Clive, Karen? Um, yeah, no, I think Clive covered a lot of the points. I would just say that for me, it's setting a plan as supervisory authorities sort of how we're going to tackle this. And I, it's funny, I see disclosures being the sort of the, the more mature sort of jurisdiction sort of getting to there. And I think it's starting with getting it on the agenda, getting on the agenda in your supervisory uh, body and getting it on the agenda in your firms. And I think about governance as being a, a great place to start and, and making sure that boards and uh, senior leadership teams in your supervised and entities are having the can have the conversation. I think that's a really important first step. So it's it's creating the plan and taking the first step. I think is is, is an important measure of effectiveness. And I see the journey taking us down to getting to a place where we have more common disclosure, same taxonomy. We can compare and contrast because that's a very powerful tool for supervisors to compare and contrast how firms are moving through the you know against their targets and their metrics. So. Um, I, I'd say that really big success for supervisors right now would be getting on the agenda for both the authority itself and, and firms. Great. And Naresh, uh, the last word to you. You opened up, so uh, give us a good close. Yes, excellent. Thank you. The, um, I, I want to take off uh, from what Clive mentioned in terms of if we're going to see change in this area of climate work, Supervisors and uh, regulators have a very important role to play, but a limited role. And that bigger picture is a systems change that is required. Now, the question that the last question that you posed was one on measurement of outcomes. Public sector institutions have been obsessed with measuring outcomes, and it has been an outcomes based performance uh, sort of era that we have lived through for a very long time. For complex systems change like climate in which governments have to be involved, supervisors, supervised entities, consumers and so on, we have to shift away from that traditional outcomes-based performance measurement to a system which really grapples 
with the complexity that we are dealing with. That kind of system was really developed and designed for logical deterministic approaches. Really what we are talking about is building bridges and physical systems. What we are dealing with now is not a physical system. It's a complex adaptive system. And so what then do you do? We are now engaged in some work colleagues and, and myself and others are looking now at how do you really make systems change? How do you measure changes uh, in system that goes beyond outcomes and outputs measurement to look, for example, at learning. What's happening to learning? What's happening to humans' attitude? What's happening to behavioral changes? Measuring all of those in addition to if you have to do some outcomes based because your plan has to have that in order to get money, which is probably still the case, you have that, but you have much more than that. And that needs to be recognized. I think that's the way forward. Good advice, thank you. So uh, I would like to thank the audience for their uh, engagement and, and joining us. I'd like to thank uh, Clive, Karen and uh, uh, Naresh uh, for your uh, candor, your insights, your thoughtfulness. Uh, we appreciate that you took the time from your busy schedules. Um, we, I think, uh, set people on the right course to have those conversations, are better prepared to do that. Um, and uh, hopefully to share that information with their colleagues. We're always seeking participants for the climate risk community of practice, and we'll be reaching out to include others. And as you heard Karen talk about her influence in the role of the, of the community to set the stage for activities like this and for other activities, uh, as we talked about with, uh, with uh, Dr. Singh. Uh, so thank you very much. Uh, happy holidays. Stay well and safe as you go. So great job. Thank, Thank you. you. Happy holidays. Bye, everyone. Thank you. Bye-bye. And thanks to you, Anatol. Yes, Anatol, thank my you, pleasure. Thanks, Clive. Thanks, uh, Naresh. We'll, be, loop again, we'll Naresh. be looping back. Yeah, good Take to care. see you guys. I love the beach. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Climate change is eroding it rather rapidly. That's the trouble. Yeah, this is a small islands challenge, you know. Yeah, I know. They disappear entirely. Yeah. Okay. All right. Thanks, George. Care. Yep. Bye bye. Okay. Uh, so our panelists, uh, we're uh, Twi. Uh, we've just got a few people left. Uh, yes, I'm here. Okay. Just. Uh, Thanks everybody. We'll uh, we'll appreciate that you've uh, stayed on, and uh, we're we're finished for the day, and for the year maybe. Uh, all the best. Happy New Year. <laughs>